Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Welcome back to the continuation of our current series, The Mysteries of the Cross, with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we'll be looking at Jesus' victory over Satan. So let's begin as we turn in our text to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. History is replete with stunning victories and defeats. But not all things are as they seem. What may appear to be a defeat can be a victory. For instance, in August or September of 480 BC at the narrow coastal pass of Thermopylae, the Greeks were completely wiped out by the invading Persian army. A much smaller group of Spartan fighters were surrounded front and back. Every man among them refused to surrender and was killed by the much larger Persian force. But that really is not the story. That small Greek force held the mighty and massive Persian army to a standstill for seven days. The net result of that heroic battle reverberated throughout Greece. It told the Greeks that if a small group of Spartans could hold the mighty Persian hordes at bay for seven days, then surely this army was seriously overrated. And that news led to a mighty stand against the seemingly unstoppable Persians. In the end, Thermopylae was the beginning of the defeat for the Persians. King Xerxes lost most of his massive army in Greece, and the war with Greece ended the Persian Empire and began the long reign of European empires. What seemed like a defeat for Greece was indeed its greatest victory. In some fashion, the Bible tells us that the seeming defeat of Jesus on the cross disarmed the rulers and authorities of the realms of hell and put them to open shame. Christ's death on the cross was the complete rout of the forces of darkness, and his humiliating blood-stained cross is also his great moment of triumph. How is that so? And how is this victory of Jesus over the powers being played out today? Now, before we answer that, let's take note of the sounds of victory that come from the cross. The New Testament trumpets the cross as the greatest moment of triumph among all the battles that have ever been fought. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57 says, But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.37 says, We are more than conquerors. And in Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. The note of triumph and victory that comes from the cross is, from one perspective, absolutely astonishing. How can Jesus, who died such an ignoble death, have in that moment become the world's greatest conqueror? It is to this that we give ourselves in today's study. What I wish to do is to show five stages in which Satan has been utterly defeated and Christ has utterly triumphed over him. And then having looked at that, we will see how this victory is being felt and played out today. The first stage of the triumph of Christ is seen in Genesis 3.15. Satan has deceived the man and the woman, and with that, the human race fell from grace. The image of God, while still resident within us as humans, is now twisted and bent at every level. And then God comes both to curse the serpent, but also to announce Satan's complete and utter ruin. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
This is the first great promise of the Messiah and also the first great promise of the utter defeat of Satan. But in order to understand this, we need to understand what Satan gained when he deceived the first human pair. From the perspective of the whole Bible, the fall represents a triumph of Satan. 1 John 5.19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In effect, with the fall, Satan built his kingdom in the hearts and in the civilizations of the human race. Ephesians 2.2 says that all the world is following the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan. He is humanity's king, and he is also humanity's tormentor. Revelation 12.9 calls Satan the deceiver of the whole earth. And in Luke 4, verse 6, when Satan came to tempt Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time, and then he says, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. The curious part of Jesus' reply was that he did not challenge that Satan had the nations to give. In John 12, 31, Jesus called Satan the ruler of this earth. From the beginnings of the civilization of Babel, Satan has been establishing his kingdom among the cities of man. He has established in some fashion human kingdoms as an alternative to the life of God. Now, before we go on, on just a practical note, please do remember that Satan is a liar. He is not God's equal, and in the end of the day, God still remains sovereign and in control. According to Romans 13, God establishes human government to provide laws and establish decency among a humanity that otherwise would descend into terrible chaos. This is called common grace. And so unlike God, Satan is not all-knowing or all-wise or all-powerful. Indeed, he's not even omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. Job 1 verse 7 then presents him as going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Satan doesn't have all the news of what's going on. Decency still exists, and he's always at work to subvert and create chaos and darkness and ugliness in all the nations. It's in that sense that he's the ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. No doubt, therefore, that Satan spends a great deal of his time subverting world leaders. He inspires them to go to war, to mistrust one another, to bring in laws in nations that will close men and women's hearts to the ways of God. He's always at work. But in Genesis 3.15, a promise is given. The coming Messiah will utterly conquer him. He will bruise his head, leaving him totally disabled. And that is the first stage in our drama. Satan rules in a partial way, and his reign is limited. The next stage in the drama, stage two, is in the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. Many Bible students have pondered the role of Satan and the demonic in the Old Testament because there he is not often mentioned, but in fact he is very present. The key to understanding spiritual warfare in the Old Testament is found in Deuteronomy 32 verses 16 and 17. There Moses says, they, that is Israel, stirred him, that is God, to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were not gods. You know, seen from this perspective, the wars in which Israel engaged and the call for kings of Israel to uphold the law of God was spiritual warfare. 
In the midst of nations in which Satan ruled with his demons, God had established a people who were called upon to be the people of God. Now, of course, we know that the sad history of Israel is how idolatry became their key issue. And so because of their past, by the time we come to Jesus, the presence of demons among the people of Israel was pronounced. It would seem from an outside perspective that the war against Satan was lost. But then came stage three in the drama, and this is the great moment in which Jesus, the long-expected Messiah, arrives onto the scene. From the very outset, through Herod, Satan attempts to have him murdered, but he fails. And then as Jesus begins his ministry, an unheard of thing begins to happen. He drives demons out with a word. He has the demonic on the run. In the Old Testament, Israel would fight against demon-inspired nations, but they could not drive out the demons themselves. But Jesus does. In Luke eleven twenty, Jesus says, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Now, of course, the demons themselves are astonished. They expected to be defeated at the end of the age, but in Jesus, something unexpected happens. This old age remains, and yet, in an unexpected fashion, the king already enters and the demons flee. In amazement, they ask, have you come to torment us before our time? And then comes stage four in the drama, and it is this one that relates entirely to what Christ accomplished on the cross. The cross represents a crippling blow to the kingdoms of darkness, so much so that the cross represents their complete and utter defeat. Let's have Paul explain that in Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Now, there's so much to say about that short passage. But at the outset, we can see that in some fashion, when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, the cross marks the decisive defeat of the demonic powers. When he announced it was finished, the power of Satan and his rulers were broken. The decisive victory over Satan has been won. He is defeated. So then how do we account for the world we live in and the sin that seems so rampant? Well, Dr. Neufeld discusses this further when we continue. To suggest Back to the Bible Canada is blessed with faithful ministry friends that stand with us is an understatement. Daily, we receive words of encouragement, incredible testimonies, often accompanied by gracious gifts of support. In June, a group of friends came together to offer a match pledge of $75,000 toward our fiscal year-end campaign. We're thrilled to celebrate the result of that campaign, but also share that this same group has provided an additional $75,000 match pledge for July to ensure we begin a new year of ministry strong. So again, for July, every gift you give is matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. Whether you're a regular giver or considering giving for the first time, what a great opportunity to maximize your donation. And join us this month in support of our $75,000 match campaign by calling one 800 6632425 or visit backtothebible.ca
The image that Paul presents in Colossians 2, 13 to 15 is the image of a triumphal Roman military procession. In the ancient Roman world, the kings and generals of armies that had been defeated by the Romans, along with all their survivors, were bound in chains and marched in processional along with all the spoils of war, and they were paraded through the streets of Rome. The public would come out in huge crowds to see such a spectacle, and they'd often jeer and mock as the once proud and fierce enemy of Rome had been reduced to such humility. In the same way, says Paul, that's what Jesus did to Satan and his kingdom of demons when he died on the cross. God the Father made a public spectacle of them, and in the cross and through Jesus, God the Father humiliated the forces of darkness to such a degree that they were put to public shame. From the cross onward, Satan has been disgraced and demeaned. His is a dispirited and demoralized army. Now, we might wonder how this can be. Given that we live in a world in which nations readily take up warfare against nations, and given we live in a world that shows all the marks of satanic rulership over them, did this really happen? I mean, how do we explain the persecution of Christians all over the world? Is this not the work of Satan? How shall we explain the nations where preaching of the gospel is strongly resisted with some even having strong anti-conversion laws? And how do we explain in our part of the world news media that is decidedly anti-Christian, along with the parading of things like abortion and sexual perversity, strong delusions about the world, and so forth? Is this all not of the evil one? Indeed it is. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that's what's happening in the world today. So in what fashion has Satan been defeated on the cross? Well, in order to answer that, let's look closely at Colossians 2, 13 to 15. We start with verse 13. And you who are dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, clearly at the beginning of the passage, Paul makes it clear that he's addressing something that Christ has accomplished for believers. All of us who know Christ were at one time dead, dead to God and dead to his will. Ephesians 2, 1-3 reminds us that we were dead in sins, meaning that we were completely unresponsive to the call of God. Furthermore, we walked according to the pattern of this world, and we were also followed the prince of the power of the air. The meeting's simple. Satan had his way with us. We were his captives. We were dead to God and alive to sin, and our minds were blinded to God by the prince of darkness. Okay, that was our life of sin. Let's move on. In verse 12b, Paul next describes our conversion. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here, conversion is seen entirely as an action of God. If, as the text says, I am dead in sin, then as we know, the dead don't decide to rise and live. We were truly dead to God in every way. And if that weren't enough, Satan further blinded our eyes. But God made us alive with Christ. He took the initiative. So much could be said here. We could talk about the work of the Holy Spirit who drew us irresistibly to Christ, who opened our eyes and our heart so that we could see that which prior to that we were incapable of seeing. This coming alive to God in verse 12b compares itself to the resurrection of Jesus. 
even as Jesus came alive out of the tomb, so also Jesus caused us as his children to come to life spiritually along with him. Now to verse 14, which tells us how it came to be that we shared in the resurrection of Jesus. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now here we clearly have a picture of the substitutionary death of Christ. When Jesus died, my legal guilt before God was not credited to my account or written in my ledger of debits. Rather, that written legal document of my condemnation was nailed to Christ's cross. God the Father nailed it there, as we saw yesterday, when he poured out his wrath onto his son, and the son nullified my guilt before God. I love that image. Not only was Jesus nailed to the cross by the will of his Father, but my sin record was nailed right there alongside of him. Now comes the breathtaking moment. Paul then adds, and I'm reading from verse 15, that when my record of trespasses were nailed to Christ's cross, then and only then he, that is the Father, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to public shame. Imagine with me that Satan functions like a slave owner. Indeed, he does. Hebrews 2.15 says that all those outside of Christ are subject to lifelong slavery to him. Imagine further how people became slaves in the ancient world. Many became slaves because they had a debt. They were unable to pay. But now the debt was paid by Christ. And since the debt is paid, our slave master has no power or authority to keep us anymore. Indeed, imagine that our cruel slave master who mocks us and and treats us with contempt. But the minute the record of our debt is paid, the power of the slave master to hold us in his prison is immediately broken. See, there are other images. In Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus pictures his church as a mighty army breaking down the gates of hell and rescuing the captives of the evil one and delivering them into the hands of God. And the key is this. Satan has no authority to hold his citizens in the kingdoms he has devised. And so remember Satan's temptation to Jesus. Come over to my side, he says, and worship me, and I will give you the kingdoms that I hold. And and Jesus refuses. And as he drives out demons and announces his own kingdom, Satan inspires Judas and enters him, and Judas betrays Jesus to the Jewish religious leaders. These men are also deeply demonic, and they rage against Jesus, and in utter cruelty, they smash him to a cross. But in this very act, in this seeming defeat of the Son of God, Jesus dies for sins, suffers the wrath of God as the Passover lamb. And in this, he buys the pardon from God for the citizens of Satan's kingdom. In that which seems like Christ's greatest defeat, Satan becomes completely and utterly humiliated. Christ, the mighty victor from the cross, has taken away Satan's authority to hold his captives. They can now be pillaged from his kingdom and brought into Christ's kingdom. Of course, in this utter humiliation, where Satan is reduced to a spectacle to be mocked, he now rages incessantly. His hatred of Christ and of Christ's elect knows no bound. But here is the last and fifth stage in the utter defeat of Satan. 
Because of the resurrection of Jesus, Christ followers no longer fear that which is Satan's ultimate weapon, death. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, if Satan should kill the followers of the victorious Christ for us, who have been crucified with Christ, death has lost its sting. We no longer fear it. John Stott, I believe, has said this so well. Crushed, he says, by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. Fulfilled is now what David told in true prophetic song of old how he the heathen's king should be, for God is reigning from the tree. Of course, we know that the victory of Christ has defeated Satan's power in the life of all who believe. The condemnation of the law, the condemnation that Satan would whisper in our ears in terms of our own sin, all of this is now useless. My condemnation has fallen onto Christ, and Satan may try to lie to me. But one glance at Scripture and one glance at the bloodstained cross makes me mock and laugh the evil one to scorn. As Martin Luther has aptly written, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Hallelujah for the cross. Our tormentor has been brought to public shame. John, a wonderful message. And I've got to ask you this question, though. Is there a sense that Satan can still have influence over us even though we are Christians? Yes, of course. And, and we are in a, locked in a battle with him until the Lord calls us home or until Christ returns. But we should never forget, Ben, and, and we need to remind ourselves of this constantly, that the one with whom we war, we war not with the, with the arm of the flesh, but with the power of the Spirit. And the one with whom we war also is the one who has been defeated by Christ. So we are taking our stand against a, a one who has already been defeated and whose doom is sure. So that should comfort us and give us courage to carry on um, because the victory is Christ. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for that great message. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. monthly partner Ellen wrote us this note. The Bible teaching I received from Back to the Bible is of an outstanding caliber, and Dr. John Newfeld's delivery of the content is thoughtful, honest, and clear. I'm so happy that the program is available to me daily in my home and to others across Canada. I want it to continue, and that's why I chose to become a monthly partner. Ellen, among hundreds of others, have chosen to join our Partner to Tell monthly partnership program. Their gifts every month have become the backbone to this and all of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. If you value the teaching of Dr. Neufeld, the encouragement from Laugh Again, or the importance of in doubt speaking into the lives of young people, would you join this important group today? 
Become a Back to the Bible Canada Partner to Tell monthly partner by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.